0: This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Hebrews. We're walking through this incredible book. It is a gold mine, and no matter how deep we dig, there just doesn't seem to be a bottom. And I am humble tonight, and I need the Lord to be able to make clear things that are complex, and you need the Lord to help you focus and pay attention. So I'm gonna do the best I can to teach with clarity if you'll do the best you can to pay attention. you guys ready to rock and roll? I have found a lot of enjoyment studying Julius Caesar. You know, not the you know, A2 brute part, I mean, it's kind of brutal. Ha <laughs> ha, brutal, brutus. Anyway. Caesar was known not only as a strategic commander, but also as a powerful, motivating leader. His men had unparalleled loyalty to him. And there is a story about Julius Caesar when he saw his men being beaten back. They were severely outnumbered. It was like 40,000 to 70,000. And spears are raining down and his men begin to falter and begin to get afraid and they're backing up. And Caesar pulls his helmet off in the middle of battle so everyone can see his face. And he starts rushing through his men, berating them for their fear. And whenever his words didn't motivate them, he ripped a shield out of the front line of one of his men and turned and charged the front line of the enemy alone so that his men had to rush in behind him to protect their beloved leader, but also they were motivated by their beloved leader. We're studying Jesus, who didn't just come down from a safe hill, but came down from the throne of glory to stand with us, to stand among us. He, being truly God, having all the attributes of God, chose not to take a hold of them for 30 plus years and take on all the attributes of humanity to be with us on the front lines, to be among us. And where gospels like John are really focused on saying, hey, Jesus was human, but don't forget he was fully God. Our passages tonight in Hebrews chapter two are trying to say he is fully God, but don't forget he became fully man. Hebrews chapter two, we're gonna start where we left off last week, because it all ties together. Let's pick up at chapter two. Man, I don't even know this is so good. He's talking about his supremacy. He's supreme to angels. So let's pick up in chapter one, verse 13, and then we're going to jump to Hebrews chapter two, verse five. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So Jesus is supreme to angels. Chapter 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the Son of Man, that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. For us to understand our passage, we're gonna have to go back to the beginning. Keep your thumb in Hebrews and turn back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, we're going to look at verse 26 and then verse 28. God is creating. He is creating so powerfully, it's simply by the word of what he says. And galaxies are coming to being. Mountains are coming up. It's incredible. And then God turns to create his masterpiece. His, as Elijah Berg says, his signature on all of his creation. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let's read verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. And God, pay attention, blessed them, period, And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God creates, and we get a picture of the term true man. This is who God created man to be. Man was going to live forever Untainted by sin, man was perfect and righteous in the eyes of God. Man walked in relationship with God in a way that we don't understand. God had given man total rulership over all the earth. How did Adam name the animals, but that he called them and commanded them? This is true man. And here, man and woman created together a full picture of god is living in a paradise as far as we know a worldwide paradise and they god put them in this paradise as a venue to know him to love the creator that loved them and to be obedient to him and god gave them a few things to do and one thing not to do and right here we read a few things to do he said go and be fruitful make babies, make a massive family of people that know and love God and are obedient to Him. This is their job. Fill the earth, take dominion of it. And there was one thing not to do. Everything that they saw was theirs for the eating except one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God gave it an explicit command in no uncertain terms, do not eat of this tree, or the consequence, the punishment, is death. And for a certain amount of time, they didn't disobey God. They lived in perfect obedience. They didn't have a sinful heart. There was nothing in them drawing them to want to be disobedient. It took an outside influencer. Enter the tempter the serpent, the one that tempts them and says, there's still more that God hasn't given you. And with that, they tried the fruit, trying to quench a hunger they didn't even have, plunging them into starving to death. separated from God, and have separated from the God of life, separated from life. And now, under the judgment of God for disobedience, they're in rebellion, they've committed treason, and the death penalty is the penalty for treason. And so God drives them out of the garden, out of his presence, from their rebellion. And man's expulsion from the garden was symbolic of their exclusion from relationship. Out here, there's only a short life of struggle, a hopeless death apart from God, and eternal punishment for treason against the king. If you're still in Genesis, turn to Genesis chapter three. Now God is speaking to those who are in rebellion against them, and he lays out a curse for the three involved, for the serpent, for the woman Eve, for the man Adam. Adam. And if you'll take a look, there's something really interesting in the curse towards the serpent. Chapter 3, let's start in verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. This isn't terminology of losing his legs. This is the terminology of an army that was defeated. They go on their belly eating dust. On your belly you shall go. You'll live in a place of defeat. All the days of your life. Verse 15, I will put enmity, hate, contention, strife. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he, singular, he, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You're going to deliver a flesh wound. He is going to deliver a mortal blow. Who is this he? It is an offspring of Eve and Adam, a descendant, a fleshly biological descendant of Adam and Eve. And I like that he mentions this about Eve. He could have said Adam would be in contention with the serpent and his seed and its seed, but instead Eve, because he's foreshadowing a virgin birth. They can't even imagine yet. We have this coming He, this one who is going to defeat evil, defeat the tempter. Let's go back to Hebrews. Hold this in your mind where we've come from. True man and mankind, humanity has fallen from a status of true man, now in sin, now destined to die, now in slavery to sin. Verse 2, 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. What? Angels are superior to man in knowledge, mobility, and power, but God didn't give them authority over his world, over his creation. God passed by them as the rulers, and he gave authority, the crown of honor, for dominion over creation to another, And here's where our author in Hebrews references Psalm chapter 8. And this is a Psalm of David. And he is so fired up about how awesome God is. He is remembering the original position that God gave man as a gift. And this is an excerpt from Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything in subjection under his feet. What is the author's point? This is a huge gift. It's a huge honor. God passed up the angels who are on a higher tier than us and gave it to man. Why? Who is man? But do we occupy that place today? Do we have dominion over creation? Do we command the birds and the fish no, we, we, we barely have control over ourselves. In fact, Ephesians 6 pulls back the curtain and shows that, in fact, demonic spirits are in charge, are ruling the world. Jesus calls Satan the prince of the power of the air, and he calls him the God, little g quotes, of this world. Demonic forces are ruling now. But God's plan for redemption is to return us back to true humanity. If you'll notice, he says, what is man that you're mindful of him? Verse seven, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. There's a plan in place. You know, I don't think we put a lot of weight on sin. I think we have our little tears. Well, this is a small sin. This is the big sin. And yet, if we're gonna rate sins eating a piece of fruit doesn't seem too big. Maybe we've forgotten the greatness of the weight of sin, that it only took a sin, one sin, to make us slaves to sin, to death. We have to stop playing this game of tiny sins and start seeing it for what it is. So number one, man temporarily was given a high position of honor. Number two, God placed the son temporarily in a humble position. Let's keep reading. The second half of verse eight. Now putting everything in subjection to him. Wait a minute. We just read that man was once on top and and all of creation was subjected to him. But now we have a new him. He left nothing outside his control. Who are we talking about? At present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. Who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Wait, where have we heard that before? Psalm 8 up above. This is where man used to occupy. Truly man was crowned with glory and honor and creation was subjected to him. So let's, look, let's read this again, but let's put Jesus in here. Now, putting everything in subjection to Jesus, God left nothing outside of his control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to Jesus, but we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, Jesus might taste death for everyone. It's strange that we, we really don't see everything subjected to Jesus right now. We look around and we're like, actually, we feel like the minority. It seems like everything is running against Christ. Everything is plunging into sin, chasing the quote-unquote God of this world, Satan the tempter, that nasty ancient serpent. For a little while, it seems like we're in a war that hasn't been won yet. But it says that even though we can't see everything under his control, everything subjugated to him, we see him who was made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor. There's another story about Caesar. It was another time that his troops were getting beaten back, and he was up on a hill on his horse, and he sees them, and they're they're in, in trouble. They're losing their their stamina. They're afraid. And so Caesar gets off his horse and passes the reins to one of his attendants. And this symbolically meant that he was entering the battle. And Caesar rushes down the hill into battle wearing a big red cape flowing behind him, fighting on the front line with this red cape flashing and moving around so that everyone could see the king was on the front line. The general was with us. They couldn't see the victory, but they could see him. We might not be able to see how everything works out in the end, how God has the ultimate victory, how he works all things together for the good of those who love him. We don't see that yet, but you know what we can see? Is we can see that Jesus died and defeated death three days later who crushed the head of the serpent. The serpent got in his, his flesh wounds, but Jesus wins. So right here in the thick, in our small perspective, we might not see the big picture, but we can look and we can see red and it's the blood of Christ that defeated the enemy. We see him for a little while, was made lower than the angels, but crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This is crazy. The author just spent a whole chapter arguing that Jesus was superior to angels. And in divinity, Jesus is superior to angels. But for 30 plus years in his humanity, he humbled himself. Turn your Bibles to Philippians. Just go left a little bit. Philippians chapter two. Paul is discussing his desire to see unity in the church in Philippi. And he's encouraging them that if they're going to have humil- if they're going to have unity, they're going to have to have humility. And so he compares them to Christ. He's saying, if Christ can humble himself from the throne of glory to the point of flesh, even to death, how much more should we as believers be willing to humble ourselves and forgive and love? And when he talks about this, he pulls back the curtain just a little bit for us to take a peek at what Jesus did. Philippians chapter two, we're gonna start in verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, we're learning about Jesus here, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. For a short season, he did not grab hold of the benefits of being God. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So what happened? Jesus steps out of heaven and for a time, he became true man. Never forsaking the fact that he was true God. He chose to not take hold of his power, his omnipresence, and limit himself to being human, to being the perfect expression of a two-year-old, to being the perfect expression of a 10-year-old, to sweating and eating and having hunger and being cold and everything that we experience. The only thing different was that he never sinned. And yet he was tempted, but without sin. It says that he tasted death for everyone. We deserved death because of our sin. Jesus took death for us. And who is everyone? Let's keep reading Hebrews 2, verse 10. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory and daughters, sons and daughters, it's plural, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So who did he taste death for? For those sons and daughters who are being called to glory. So that he could be the founder. A lot of translations say that he is the captain of our salvation. He's the trailblazer. He's the founder of our salvation. He's the one who opens the way for others to follow. He had to be made perfect as our Savior. And so he suffered. He died so that he could be our perfect Savior. And it doesn't mean that he was imperfect and became perfect. It means that he was complete. He was finished. He is the perfect Savior for us. And then our author moves on to a beautiful argument. See if you can follow me with this. He's going to look at Old Testament passages that prove that this coming Messiah was human. and He's going to look at one, two, three passages in the Old Testament bringing out truths. And so he's methodical here. The Messiah is human. He must be human. Let's check it out. Verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Wait a minute. They all have one source. They all come from the same place. What does that mean? Think about Genesis chapter 3. Eve's descendants and the tempter's descendants will be at war. They all come from the same place, meaning Jesus became man, born of a human, the Virgin Mary, so that he comes from the exact same source as the rest of us, all of mankind. All goes back to Adam. And this is important, you need to remember this. Not even Eve was created separate, but she was created from Adam. Adam is the original prototype. And through Adam comes all of us. And because Jesus was born through a woman, he also comes from the same source as all of us. So it was fitting, verse 11, for he who sanctifies, Jesus, and those who are sanctified, the sons and daughters of glory, those are believers, all have one source, Adam. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, And he is quoting uh, Psalm 22 here. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, and I will sing your praise. And if you have time later, go look up Psalm 22. It is crazy clear that it is talking about Jesus. Wildly clear. And this he of Psalm 22 that perfectly describes Jesus Written a thousand years before he walked on earth, has this phrase right in the middle, right in the middle of talking about how much Jesus would suffer. Psalm 22 is about suffering, it's painfully about suffering. It opens with the Messiah feeling forsaken. But he grabs this line, our author, from a psalm that everyone knew was about the Messiah. And he says, I will tell of your name to my brothers with the Messiah speaking. The Messiah is saying, I'm telling your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So he is a descendant of Adam to the point that he identifies me and you as his brothers and sisters. That's kind of cool. If you take something home, that's kind of neat. Jesus identifies so much with us that he considers us all one family of brothers and sisters. Jesus is your brother. It's kind of cool. Let's keep going. Verse 13, and again, and he's quoting from Isaiah 8. (laughs) Isaiah, this is the section that says, and there will be a son born of a virgin and he will be called Emmanuel. That is the section we're reading from, specifically clearly about the Messiah. And we read, verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. The Messiah is saying, I am putting my trust in God, Father God. So first, Jesus identifies with us as, as brothers. Second, Jesus puts his trust in God. God doesn't put his trust in God unless he is also truly man, putting his trust in God. And again, Behold, I and the children of, of I and the children God has given me. Behold, I and the children. Of God. So we have three tiers here. We have God, we have the Messiah speaking, and we have the children God gave to the Messiah. Do you see all three of those? Happening in this one little brief section? Behold, I and the children God has given me. All three tiers are happening here. Are you following me? Please tell me you're following me. This is interesting. Turn your Bibles to John. Keep your thumb in Hebrews, we're going back. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 10. Everything connects. John chapter 10. Behold, I and the children God has given me Chapter 10, verse 27. Jesus is arguing, and he's talking about the religious leaders and how they are coming to rob God's people. But Jesus is the good shepherd that will protect his sheep from these thieves. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Listen, my Father who has given them to me, Is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. What does Isaiah say that Hebrews brought out? Behold, I and the children God has given me. The redeemed, the sons and daughters of glory, belong to the Son. So, our little verses here from the Old Testament, he's making an argument that he is a descendant of Abraham, relating to us as brothers. Jesus puts his trust fully in God. He is true human. He is the example of what we should do, putting his trust fully in God, except we don't do it because we're sinful. And three, all of God's people are given to him. And now we move into a section of so what? Why is it so important that Jesus became human? And our author is going to give us four reasons that this is important. Four works that Christ did for us. Four blessings that he gives us that would not have been accomplished unless true God became true man. And these are the four that if you memorize them, you can get a sticker or bracelet out there. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood. Wait, wait, what children? Aha, back here, remember? Behold, I and the children of God has given me. These children, since the children share in flesh and blood, He himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus became flesh and blood. That through death, he might destroy the one who has power of death. That is the devil. So the first thing that he does is he becomes human so that he can bleed for us. And through dying on the cross, destroys the power of death. Destroys the one who has the power of death. Jesus was as much human as you and I. He had the same pressures, desires, affections, thoughts, feelings, temptations. He experienced abandonment. He was only different because he was without sin. But our author is arguing that he had to be made human for our salvation. Why? Why couldn't God just come in the form of a human? Why couldn't God send an angel to come and do this this work and die? because God did not violate his own law and an angel did not violate his own law. Humanity violated God's law and only a human can represent humanity in serving the penalty that we all deserve. Humanity was treasonous. It's going to take a human, a man, to pay the penalty that humanity deserves. So his first work is that he destroys the one who has power over death. The devil is defeated, just like it promised way back in Genesis 3.15. Satan is defeated. Jesus calls him a murderer because Satan used death as a tool against God's people to bring fear. Death was always, it's like if there's a pit. The pit is punishment and the devil is always leading people to get them lost and trapped in the pit. Satan uses death to sabotage God's people. And so Jesus died so that for us, death has no more power. Satan can't lead us to a pit that God has filled in. It's over. Satan has no more teeth. And two, destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Adam, of Abraham, excuse me, helps the offspring of Abraham. So one, he destroys the one who has the power of death. Two, he delivers those who are subject to slavery. In the Old Testament, they had no concept of an afterlife. They called it Sheol, the place of the dead. Both the righteous and the unrighteous went there. In their minds, it was this place of silent, still darkness, something to be afraid of. And people don't come back from the dead to let you know that, you know, what it's like. This was their understanding. So much so that they imagined that if there was an afterlife of any kind, it was through their legacy to their children and their children's children, which is why they would pass incredibly accurate stories of their family down through hundreds of generations. This is why they trace their genealogies, because your legacy was all that you had after death. So there was a fear in death. It was gloomy. It was scary. And then Jesus, who everyone watched die, comes back from the dead. And then says, I am making the way so that you can follow in my footsteps. Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Jesus is the first fruits from the dead because his people will follow suit. Death has no more power. To be absent from the body is to be with him. Paul says, death, where's your sting? You have nothing on me. There's no fear in death. The coming threat of death has no power. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, which is more than just Abraham's biological descendants. Both Jesus and Paul argue that all who believe in Christ are Abraham's offspring, because God promised Abraham back in Genesis 12, 3, that God was going to bless Abraham so he could have descendants so that he could be a blessing to all nations, not just his own biological descendants. Great stuff. Go search it out. Verse 217, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiations, that's satisfaction. That means it's done. The bow is tied on this deal for the sins of the people. So Jesus defeats the one who has power over death. Jesus sets and delivers us free from slavery And Jesus redeems us from our sin. The difference between a prophet and a priest is that a prophet brings a word from God to the people, but a priest takes the needs of the people to God. And Jesus, going through suffering and death, becomes merciful towards us, and yet he is faithful, a sinless sacrifice towards God. And Jesus as the perfect high priest brings a sacrifice, but it's not an animal. Jesus brings a sacrifice for God and as the perfect high priest, and yet also the perfect lamb climbs up onto the table to die for us so that he is both the priest and the lamb. He has made perfect reconciliation between us and God. One last big thought to hit you with before we break here. And this is the answer to the question, why did Jesus have to become man? Turn your Bibles, keep your thumb in Hebrews. We're going back one last time to Romans chapter five. We're going to start in verse 12. Romans chapter five, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who's that? Adam. Sin came into the world through one man, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So, through Adam, the disease of sin enters the world, the disease of rebellion enters the world, and every human is infected with it. Let's jump down to verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, one man's sin, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through whom one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Jesus See, one true man, Adam, fell because of sin. One true man, Jesus, was perfectly obedient to the Father. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Adam was our perfect representative before God. Perfect, because if me and you had been Adam and Eve, we would have done the exact same thing as Adam and Eve. Adam exactly typified us. Did exactly what we would have done. So if you're ever like, well, you know, I don't understand why why I have to pay the punishment for what Adam did or what Eve did. It's because they perfectly represented exactly what you would do and what we do every day. So if Adam was our perfect representative, the only way for us to be saved was for another representative who is a perfect representative of God and a perfect representative of man to stand before God in perfect obedience so that God could take his representation, what we could never do, a representation of perfect holiness, of perfect righteousness and obedience, of infinite value, and lay that over us so that by one man sin came into the world and by one man, a new representative, sin is defeated and we're covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And here is a beautiful way to close. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are tempted. That's good to know. We were once slaves of sin, but now because God is in us, our perfect representative is in us, he has now given us the ability to choose righteousness. And through the power of his Holy Spirit, he's given us the strength in temptation to not only not sin, but to choose and run after the Lord. We have time for this. I need like a piece of paper, sweet. This is worth our time. Let's see, who's probably one of the strongest people in the room, who do you think? Maybe, maybe. Allison. Allison. Matt's pretty strong too. Let's pick on Shane, come on up Shane. Yeah, you embody strength in my mind. He does, he has the dad strength. All right, so here, curl that. Just curl it. Yeah, would you, would you see that as a significant weight of any kind? Um, not yet. Not yet, okay. So I want you to hold it straight out like this, sideways. There you go, just hold that there. No, parallel to the floor, perfect. Okay. Jesus descended his throne like Caesar from his hilltop, to live and suffer and bleed for our salvation. He overcame sin because he was God, and we can overcome sin because he, God, is in us. There was a young man who was working in a diner. He was just a host. He didn't have any particular skills. He hadn't worked his way up. He's probably working minimum wage, But on this particular evening, a particularly busy evening, many people got sick who were supposed to be working that night. And so he found himself doing a whole bunch of extra jobs that he doesn't usually do. And then the worst news of all, the manager comes up front and says, I've got a phone call from home. There's an emergency. I've got to go. And leaves this young man alone, running things, solo, uno, in trouble. And he's got customers who are demanding things. There's food to be cooked. There's people that need to be seated. There's tables that need to be cleaned. And he is losing his mind, stressed to the hilt, sweating. And so he steps away from the crowd for a minute and he calls his dad and says, dad, I don't know what to do. Everyone has left. I, I can't hold this down. And his dad said, "Son, this is what I want you to do. I want you to assess the problems and deal with just one at a time, and I'll be there soon." And his dad, getting off work, drives over at Mach three to get to the diner, and his dad comes in, puts on the apron, gets a little pad, and he starts serving with his son. His dad doesn't work here. And he starts waiting tables and he runs to the back and starts cooking things. And the two of them, as a father son duo, they knock it out of the park. And they get all everyone eating and fed and out. They close, they clean, they Z out the register. And it's done. Who is responsible for the diner? The young man. Who had the strength to save the day? The dad. Why did the dad save the day? Because he loves his son. You see, we, I should have picked someone weaker. You're supposed to look like you're struggling, Shane. You should have like sweat, red eye. You know. You, you see, God's expectations of obedience—they're they're really small. What what is it that makes this so heavy? What? Why is this heavy? The weight of His humanity, His flesh and blood, make this heavy. And I'll tell you what our Jesus does. Because he became weak and suffered for us. Because he relates to us in our suffering, that he is both merciful and faithful, is our Jesus steps into our life and into our hearts. That's a lot better. (laughs) That's a lot better. And he shoulders what we could never do on our own. Thanks, Shane. Yeah. <laughs> man was given a place of honor, but he fell. Jesus, in his divinity, was superior to angels, but in his humanity, made lower than the angels, taking on humanity. In becoming true man, he accomplishes four things for us he defeated Satan, he set us free from bondage, he redeemed us from sin, and he helps us in our temptation. And because he is in us, we have the ability to choose righteousness. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for every student that you helped to pay attention tonight. Lord, let there be beauty from this that fills in some gaps in our minds. It gives us a reverence and an awe for what you did for us. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. And if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, that hasn't encountered a Lord who would step down from his throne of glory to die for us, that they would have their hearts pricked by you until they call you their Lord and Savior. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. And a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus!